Cone, Cone, Ray, 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 Radio. Impossible. Here is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? It's box 39. On this week's show... Impossible. With Bill Lawrence, Adrian Cohen and Ian Tallentire. Hello everybody and welcome to you all, particularly, particularly perhaps anyone who likes to wrestle, wrestle with their conscience or just wrestle in jelly or anyone who would like to wish upon a star. I am Bill and with Ian and Adrian and our 16-piece house band Ausgang Exit led by Professor Henry, we are live here in Studio One at the mighty Colm Radio Towers for the next 60 minutes. Hello Ian, what a wonderful show this is going to be. Indeed it is, and yes, because our theme this week is impossible, unviable, unfeasible, unattainable, unachievable, or just the stuff that has no solution. I must say, in your idea, to have a Mission Impossible fancy dress theme in Studio One tonight was really quite impressive, even inspired, you know, particularly for a man of your age. I'm glad you like it, Bill. Your use of a pair of late 1960s hand-knitted Cold War trousers tonight oh. makes you the perfect Jim Phelps character. Thank you. Played by Peter Graves in the original TV series that ran for seven series from 1966 to 1973. Well, Top I, I, stuff. I, thank you. I'm glad you like them. And I have to say, you know, with your latest hairpiece that you, you've got out tonight, for the first time I think I've seen that, that gives you that uh, Tom Cruise floppy fringe. You're looking eerily identical, aren't you, to Mr. Cruise's Ethan Hunt character that's appeared in all six films in that franchise and with the medallion-encrusted secret agent-style leatherette shirt on tonight, Ian, you're perhaps most closely matching Cruise from the fourth film, I think, the fourth Mission Impossible film, Ghost Protocol. You're definitely noticing everything tonight, Bill. So with our team of technicians poised to press their buttons and slide their faders in perfect harmony once more, it's time for us to start a wonderful wall of radio sound. So let's open our Box 39 Impossible Special. It's not impossible for me to cry. It's just the hardest thing I've ever done. And it's a shame, you know, but it's ingrained, you know. Boys don't cry. Boys don't cry. I was scared, you know, and I was mad, you know, but boys don't cry, boys don't cry. I can try and try to change your mind, like one man pulling a train down the line. Takes time, I know, but who has time, you know? Boys don't cry, boys don't cry. This is Ben Solly singing It's Not Impossible. 
And what he's telling us here is that it is not impossible for him to cry, despite it being ingrained in him, and indeed all of us, that boys don't cry. This is interesting insofar as it goes, but what about other things, more interesting things that are not impossible for him? Is it also not impossible for him to taste food without saliva, or to swallow and breathe at the same time? And is it not impossible for him to fold his tongue and do other strange tricks? These are the seemingly impossible things I'd like him to sing about. And I must admit, all jokes aside, I'd find some men beautiful, some girls handsome, some children wise. And I hope someday, before I die, I can share the kiss that brings tears to my eye. And it's a shame, you know, but it's ingrained, you know. Boys don't cry, boys don't cry. that's in the box. The boys from Ausgang Exit are on top form tonight. That is Ausgang Exit with their Mission Impossible theme. Keep going, boys. We're really enjoying that. Thank you for coming in to play that. Now, Impossible is our theme, Ian. I did send you out uh, to dig deep into the undiscovered corners of Box 39. Dig really deep, past your elbows deep, to reveal what it contained on Impossible. So, what did you find? Well, firstly, I would like to point out to all our listeners that uh, last week... or. On the last show, Bill wrote down my instruction because my hairpiece has been getting in the way of any auditory signals. And what can I say, Bill? Well, what can I say? A show based on this week's chosen theme is pretty much that. Impossible. After the last show, we did, uh, you know, the frippery about power, fern-lined underwear, and who gets to sit on the throne. The topic tonight pretty much fulfills the definition. So, Bill, hit us with the definition of impossible. Well, I'd just first like to say that uh, don't diss my fur-lined underwear, please. Uh, Well, get off the throne. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the definition of impossible. Um, Not possible, not able to occur, not able to exist, not able to be done, as in the phrase, a seemingly impossible task. How about that? Well, very good, and thank you. Um, The only consolation tonight is that we now tend to use the word in conversation to mean something less extreme. Go on, Bill. Hit us with it. Well, it's very difficult to deal with, as in the phrase, she was in an impossible situation. So, pretty much like the word brilliant, Uh, which originally only meant the light emitted from a diamond, the word has been Uh, corrupted and newer meanings have been established. I see. So, brilliant ideas, bright lights or illumination. Exactly, Bill. But we're here to talk about the impossible. Well, I wish you would get on it, really. You're just procrastinating. (laughs) Let me assure, um, that was only my introduction. A scene setter, a little bit of plot exposition. Uh, Can I carry on now? There you go again, you see. All I can say to you is Tenzin Gaiatso. He was a a great procrastinator too, just like you. Never got to the point. Who? Tenzin Gaiatso. You know, the 14th Dalai Lama. Oh, that well-known individual. Yeah, well, he teaches about compassion as the source of happiness in life. And you know, he said, I know this, he said, uh, you must not procrastinate. Instead, you should make preparations so that even if you die tonight, you would have no regrets. What a man. Are you suggesting I'm not getting to the point? Yes, I am, actually. Uh, You know, I've mentioned it in previous shows, but, you know, I'm starting to think that I should. You should learn from the great French author. Hey, let me stop you there. I may be a procrastinator, but you're an interjector. (laughs) Yeah, but only at the weekends. Now, you should learn from the great French author, Victor Hugo, who, like you, had uh, had a variety of hair pieces in his old age, just like you, actually, and uh, he also suffered from putting things off. Do you know, he he had this unique method to stave off procrastination. He'd get his servant, strip him naked in his study, and not return with his clothes until he'd started work on his latest manuscripts. Okay, what do we consider the impossibles (laughs) in life? Uh, Well, uh, work, 
I'm going to hedge on relationships. Ooh, that's, you are. <laughs> you're on dangerous ground there. Biggie I, there. I'd stick uh, for finance. It's got to be there. Well, I'd follow that with maths then. Oh, then physics. I failed that at uh, a thing called an O level many well, years ago. I think many of us would look at age and the ability uh, to stay yeah, young. Yeah. So time. Time. So, Bill wants to be a Time Lord. To generate enough time, I may need to join him. I'm short of that commodity myself. Those few words we uttered give an idea of those things that can be very difficult to deal with. And in two weeks that I've been considering the topic, relationships and jobs came at the top of my list. Though when I asked friends and colleagues to say the first thing to come into their heads after I said the world it word the word impossible, it was historic things that were in the majority. The pyramids, oh, right, yeah. Aztecs, temples, okay. uh, the Great Wall of China, the Roman road network. Uh, well, these are all a bit old. Surely there's nothing modern in your list? Well, list? there were. Some were very modern. Um, a little unfortunate, you could say. Atomic weapons, yep. nuclear power, yep. space travel. Like it. Antibiotics, nuclear medicine, test tube babies. Ah. And then we got some really interesting ones. Um, ending of apartheid, yeah. Northern Ireland settlement, oh, peace between Egypt and Israel. Okay, a remarkably impossible one would have thought. So So, where do we go with this conversation in the next parts of the show, Ian? Well, I'd suggest we unpick some of these things we've just mentioned to try and understand why they're viewed as impossible and how they became possible. So you reckon the impossible can't be made possible? I couldn't possibly comment. Oh, a rare speechless moment from Ian then. So the greatest procrastinator really is not Ian. Uh, It has to be St. Augustine. He was a sort of 4th century recovering sex addict, uh, if such a thing existed. You know, he spent his life trying to resist temptation. He's famous for his prayer, a motto of sorts for procrastinators, which included the thoughts, Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. And which ended, How long is it, God? How long must it be? Which is something I have often considered. to get through these traffic jams. Well, don't you hear that just all the time? My answer is self-driving cars. Self-driving cars, they'll fix all our problems on the roads. And with companies like Google and Tesla up and coming, more and more people begin to understand and trust that technology. And don't underestimate the power of technology to solve our traffic issues. I think about the first traffic problem, very common. One person reacts to something, uh, maybe it's another car merging into their lane, and that car slows down, you get the ripple effect, each car behind them brakes, eventually gets slower and slower, and everything comes to a stop. You get these on motorways. Well, you avoid this by teaching L drivers to drive equidistantly from each other, so no sudden braking. But of course, we're not going to be able to do that. You know, we have slower reaction times and short attention spans. Second traffic problem is the gridlock, where humans with their slow reaction times take different times to pull away from traffic lights. And so the first car reacts to the green light, then the next, then the next. The cars behind squish in, meaning that someone gets stuck in the middle, they have a jam. So again, the simple solution to that, all drivers accelerate at the same time and speed as soon as the light goes green but that's impossible that's never going to happen so the solution self-driving cars with technological capacities much superior to that of humans eliminates slow reaction time short attention spans consequently we're going to solve all our traffic problems the ripple effect goes because we all drive completely equidistantly from each other slow reaction times are eliminated cars will be able to accelerate at the same times uh, a green light in fact let's get rid of traffic lights because traffic lights are just a way for cars to communicate with each other and uh, they'll be communicating with each other all through the main frame at speeds faster than light so my conclusion as soon as we get rid of this stigma surrounding self-driving cars and mass populations start to invest in and utilize self-driving technology 
technologies will have safer, more efficient roads. Do you know, that's not impossible. That really is possible. Like we share the same life, but we went our separate ways. Struggle through day and night, trying to find a better way. I'm trying to get away. It's like you wanna stay. Ain't nothing round here but fake guys and dirty snakes. Now we done see man come, now we done see man go. I thought we had love until this beef on road. Now we don't even, we don't even roll. Cake Oak is an English rapper of Greek Cypriot descent from Stonebridge, Northwest London. Rap is a musical form of vocal delivery that incorporates rhyme, rhythmic speech, and street vernacular. He doesn't actually sing the song, he doesn't follow its melody, he doesn't sing any of the lyrics, and he never uses the word impossible, which is the title of the song. Just goes to show you, nothing is impossible when it comes to doing a cover version. Brentwood School is a selective independent day and boarding school in Brentwood, Essex in the United Kingdom and the school was founded in 1557 and comprises a preparatory school, a senior school and sick form as well as boarding provision for both boys and girls. Are we advertising? Are we? <laughs> is this an entry to something? Are they a sponsor? Oh, OK. No, they're not our sponsor. Anyway... The reason we're doing this piece is that Bill attended this school during the 1970s when, as was befitting of those alternatively enlightened times, he was made to swim in the outdoor swimming pool whilst it was snowing, the caning of junior students by senior prefects was encouraged, and he had a Latin teacher called Charlie who would put his wooden leg on the teacher's desk, light a cigarette and dictate extracts from Caesar's Gaelic Wars Volume 2 for about an hour. Well, he would have done the Gaelic Wars, but actually, Gallic. the Gallic Wars. Well, yeah. A few hundred miles I didn't difference. say garlic, at least. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the point of all this being that between 1994 and 2001, a man called Daryl Selby, a professional squash player and coach, also attended Brentwood School, which for over 100 years has had its own squash courts. And Daryl is currently England's number one squash player and is 16th in the world rankings. It's funny you should mention Daryl, because I know him, which might be the reason why I uh, had a conversation with him recently when he played a guy called James Wilstrop. Um, And before he started that game, I got to have a serious chat with him about his career. I'm Daryl Selby, currently England's number one squash player, ranked 16 in the world. Uh, On this month's rankings, I've been a professional for 15 years. There's got to be a reason why you got into a particular sport. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, my dad played uh, as something that, you know, as a hobby. Um, It was something he got into in his in his early 20s and then had me and you know that was his passion football and and squash were his two sports he played Um, and you know 
pretty much they were the two sports I played a little bit of cricket and other other stuff as well but um, but yeah football and squash I started when I was five just followed him at the at the local squash club which was Bishop Stalkford for me and not too far away from where we are now so I enjoy playing it's it's a great sport um, very fast you got to be quick you got to have good hand-eye coordination skill um, tactics you know it brings a lot of different qualities together to produce your you know you as an athlete and that's what I've always enjoyed about it to be honest So at what point did it become serious and what do you define as serious? I think I define as serious obviously being a professional to be honest. I mean any time that you're having to earn money um, for your living through playing a sport, that's when it becomes serious for me because that's when you have to pay bills etc. But before that as a kid I only ever saw it as fun and never you know, really thought about it being a career. Um, I just enjoyed playing. I didn't play loads and loads or as much as the other kids because I was playing loads of different sports as a kid. So um, it was just something I really enjoyed doing. And I think the fact that I didn't play every day meant I enjoyed, you know, I looked forward to going to play. Um, I, ne I was never forced to go and train or play or anything like that. So I think that's why I'm still, I still enjoy it now. And, you know, the longevity of it has come from that. So you say you enjoy it now, is it still as pleasurable to play now as a professional as it was as a kid? Uh, yeah, definitely, like as match-wise, match 100%, I th I'd say training-wise nowhere near as much, but then I don't think I ever enjoyed training, really. I, I, when I say training, I mean I enjoy physical training, I enjoy working hard and trying to run a faster 10k than I did last time, but I don't necessarily enjoy the process of learning a new technique or doing routines on a court or anything like that. I don't really enjoy it. I've done it over the years because I'm professional and that's what has needed to be done at times to try and get better. But that part of it, I've never really, I would say enjoyed, but the the, the head to head battle and playing against someone and trying to beat them and figure out a way to win and, and hitting different shots and all that type of stuff, playing a match, a squash match. Um, yeah, I really enjoy it still. I'm looking at you now, and you've got this beard on your face, and <laughs> it, it looks very nice, Thank but there's you. the odd grey hair in there. There is indeed. And you're telling me that you're still learning new techniques. Well, I mean, I say learning, to, yeah, I think you're always learning, to be honest. Um, you're always trying new things, learning new things. The game changes very quickly. That You know, squash is, has changed enormously since I first became a professional, and by that I mean, you know, the game's got faster, um, it's, the rackets have got rackets, bigger. Rackets have got bigger. Well, I don't know. They were pretty big when I first started. Um, not when I very first started, when I was five, but when I was a professional. I think uh, I think it's more to do with the just the, the training methods and uh, science behind sport has improved immensely over the last 10, 15 years. And I think as athletes, everyone's got, got faster and stronger um, can sustain it for a longer period of time. You mentioned the science behind it. Now you're an, an individual. It's not the highest um, income sport when you compare it to the likes of golf and tennis, yep. and possibly even cricket these days. Yep. How do you fund that scientific input? Where do you go for that scientific input? Um, I mean, I've been very lucky. I got supported by England Squash for a very long time and uh, received lottery funding and support in that in that sense. So we've always had physiotherapy support, uh, strength and conditioning support, even analysis, match analysis, and that's always been very helpful to be honest. Um, but 
without that funding, I don't know. I mean, where do you go to find an analyst, someone that, you know, you'd have to end up having to do it yourself? Well, your old man's probably not that bad. Yeah, no, he, he's good, but I don't know about it. He doesn't write anything down. He says it's all in his head, but I, I think he forgets half of it. <laughs> but, um, no, he's very good at, you know, watching and, and giving advice in between games. But, um, but, yeah, where'd you go? I mean, without that funding, I'm not sure. It's, it's, it's expensive, you know, if you're going for a physio session or... Uh, strength and conditioning sessions and you're paying out of your own pocket I mean ideally you want to be having those once a week and you know on the, on the money you earn as a squash player that's, that's definitely not easy Henry and the boys beating out the Mission Impossible theme for us again tonight. And it's been a while, but I didn't realise that Big Sue was so good on the flute. She's excellent, isn't she? Anyway, we're looking at the high concept of impossible this week, and in our earlier chat, we discussed some of the apparent impossible things in our lives. So, Ian, how do we make that impossible into the possible? What are we going to unpick first? I think we should go large and look at relationships. Okay. So, why are relationships, their existence and maintaining them, A, so important, and yet they're so fraught with pitfalls and what actually seemed almost impossible to avoid? Well, as you know, sometimes it's about communication, isn't it? There's a bit of a negotiation in there. Well, yeah, you're right. And is it that we've lost that ability to firstly communicate properly and any skill in negotiation? Well, yeah, the world is a bit of an electronic blackout, isn't it, in terms of communicating? It's all about machines, not people. These well, we days, don't, I think we don't do a lot of um, typing a sentence, pinging it off to somebody and thinking that's the end of the debate. But actually, it's one sentence. Well, uh, yeah, I think maybe time. Time and, and work, you know, when are you available? I've got to work, I've got to work, I've got to do so much work, I need the money. But do you not also think it's, you know, there's... I've got three kids, you've got three kids, but there's a lot of single single kids out there who have no discussion time, um, no ability or, or little ability to uh, gain gain confidence in constructing a, an argument, de- destroying an argument, and actually learning to communicate properly. Um, whether we're creating too many princes and princesses um, who have lost those talents, and well, therefore they're almost doomed, as a certain uh, well, character would say. Well, there we have a path to make the impossible possible. So, well, okay, so from relationships, uh, from family side, well, what about uh, work itself? Let's talk about work, the place we, you know, we spend more time there than we do at home, don't we? We do, and to be quite honest, I feel it's pretty much um, the same potential hazards and conflicts which are likely to arise. And in fact, they're likely to be even worse because there's less invested in those relationships. They're not your flesh and blood. And the likelihood of loyalty influencing things is, well, you know, definitely reduced. Yeah, so that stays impossible. But is it just possible? Maybe it's possible. Um, you know, to to create some sort of relationship with uh, people at work, uh, to coin that dreadful modern phrase of the, the service users. <laughs> you know, I couldn't possibly comment. Oh, well, okay. Then. <laughs> so let's think about history. Then you know, uh, you talked about ancient and you talked about modern. Well, in the introduction, I mentioned the Great Wall of China, Roman roads, no roundabouts, and the pyramids. And if you think hard enough, there are equally interesting, if less spectacular, architectural reminders of past ages closer to home. Yeah, there's uh, Stonehenge, isn't there? Anywhere else? Well, Colchester Castle. Yeah, there's some wonderful cathedrals, isn't there? And, uh, exactly, yeah. And the, uh, the odd one out pub. Absolutely. And we look at them and we wonder how the devil, with no heavy lifting gear, proper drilling or excavation equipment, they managed to construct such magnificent things yeah no unions either no workers rights no health and safety they didn't understand about uh, you know calories needed to equal calories expended they certainly did turn the impossible didn't they into the possible too right yeah easier for those barking the instructions and carrying the weapons yeah, but i mean i would suggest it was somewhat harder for those doing the work who were in all probability slaves 
Because, you know, the wonderful, huge projects, great planning, engineering, not one computer at all, um, little cost other than in lives. It, it's starting to sound like the construction sites at the next venue for the World Cup. Uh, I didn't think we'd better talk about that because that will get my goat going. It might also get you into trouble, sir. So let's very briefly, we're running out of time here. Can we think of some sort of science and politics? I like those. What about political impossibles that became possible? Well, that would definitely be uh, Northern Ireland, Egypt, Israel, apartheid, and now we're looking at North South Korea. Yeah. But are they impossible, Bill, or are they... Improbable. Oh, well, that's a whole new thing you're talking there. Well, we're back to our previous programme on French words, aren't we? And nuance. Well, very, very quickly, go on. Ch- uh, choose something in science that really should have been impossible, but it became possible. Uh, blood transfusions. Oh, yes. World War One. Yeah, triage. Yeah. Oh, oh, we're talking World War One. That's, that's something coming up. Now, look, history, you know, is the art of making the impossible into the possible. And necessity is the mother of invention. That's so important in history. Or it's said in Hindi, of course, Avshai Akhtahi, Avishkaki, Janan Ihai. Let's do something impossible. Let's do something grand. Remember when we had nothing. Oh, remember we made it work Honestly, it was a miracle This week's word is Quokka-Wodger, Q-U-O-C-K-E-R-W-O-D-G-E-R. I'll give you three definitions and you have to decide which one is true. Here we go. Quokka-Wodger. Does it mean an underarm delivery in cricket that does not reach the stumps at the far end? Quokka-Wodger. Does it mean a wooden puppet controlled by strings? Quokka-wodger. Does it mean a child used as a lookout or distraction by pickpockets? Which one is it? I'll give you five seconds. A quokka is a wooden puppet controlled by strings. Just as lovely as it seems Yes, this is an impossible love The flaming lust is an exhaustible love And flames combust and flames will be And in love and why should two loves not agree? No, this is an impossible love The both of your arms would offer Tender grace It's such an exhaustible love Fueling my heart With only illusion Please mm. C'est un d'échec Un jeu que tu crois Un jeu de fléchettes Un mouvement de l'obscurité Vide de vérité en ligne qu'on puisse pas voir en descendant l'air This is Melody Gardo singing Impossible Love Once again, its take on what is and is not possible strikes me as rather limited 
Is it impossible for Ms. Gardo to lick her own nose? Is it impossible for her to tickle herself? Is it impossible for her to write the number six while moving her foot in a clockwise circle? These are the things I would like to know. Impossible love is fine as far as it goes, but where are the songs about other impossible things? Listening to Box 39, The Wall of Radio Sound, with Bill Lawrence, Adrian Cohen, and Ian Tallentire. In 1557, Sir Anthony Brown, the Lord Chief Justice under Queen Mary, acquired the land on which Brentwood School was first built. During Mary Tudor's reign, hundreds of Protestants were burned at the stake and a well-known Brentwood Protestant, William Hunter, was ordered by Sir Anthony Brown to be executed. This act may have led Sir Anthony Brown to found Brentwood School. I do feel we're having a history lesson now, sir. Notable old boys from Brentwood School include author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, and angry comedian, actor, singer and writer, Keith Allen. That's the father of singer Lily Allen. The inventor of snooker, Colonel Sir Neville Chamberlain, and broadcaster, Sir Robin Day. The most beardy disc jockey and broadcaster, Noel Edmonds, attended Brentwood School, as did England footballer, Frank Lampard. Comedian Griff Rees-Jones Sid and former Foreign Secretary Jack Straw is also an old boy. In the second part of our interview with ex-Brentwood School student and England number one squash player Daryl Selby, Daryl talks about the options available to a professional sportsman when it's time to move on and retire from the highest levels of competitive play. <laughs> I'm Daryl Selby, currently England's number one squash player, ranked 16 in the world uh, on this month's rankings. I've been a professional for 15 years. What does the future hold? For a man with grey hair and his beard, sorry yes, Daryl, sorry yes. to bring you and back. And three kids as well. And no, three kids, right, so yeah. where does the future take a professional squash player? Well, to be honest, it takes a professional squash player in a lot of different directions. Um, it depends who you are, what your interests are, and what you want to do afterwards. Um, for me personally, I, I can't see a way of not being involved in sport somehow. I love love all sport. I love watching it. I love playing it. So um, I have to be involved in that. I studied uh, sports management at university, and I have a good degree in that. So um, you know, I decided last year that I was going to really follow that up, and I've started my own sports management company now dynamic seven sport and um i'm looking after some squash players a golfer and trying to sort of build that side of the business um gradually whilst i'm slowing down the the playing side of squash slowing down number one yeah that's hardly slowing down well you know playing less training less yeah it's i mean it's to be honest it's fairly ironic that i've ended up as england number one now at 35 and a half and and probably uh, not quite in the best best shape that I've been in my 15 years of uh, of playing. But, but you have um, had some serious competition over those years. For sure. I mean, obviously, you know, we're talking about Nick and, and James, world champions and world number ones uh, from the same country, which, you know, doesn't doesn't happen that often. So um, The perfect storm for you. Yes, but, you know, on the other side of that, it's been... Uh, it's been great because I've been part of it, you know, World Championship winning England teams with those guys, um, you know, as the other two players in the team. So on that side of it, you know, I've I've experienced the good side of, of being playing with them um, and the tough side of playing against them and competing for, um, you know, British Championships and, and, and other accolades on the tour.
Now your dad and your sister are both heavily involved in coaching and in outreach. Do you see that as something that you will go into as well as the management side? I think I sort of already do a little bit of it. Um, I enjoy it. I try and help out uh, a little bit with the coaching with the kids um, when I can. Uh, I enjoy that and the more I've done it the more I've enjoyed it to be honest because what's the, I think the most difficult part of that is coming in and not knowing the kids and the kids not knowing you no matter who you are even if they know you because they've watched you play on TV or whatever it is as soon as you build up a rapport with them and as soon as you get to know their characters I find it a lot more enjoyable because it's not all about them becoming better squash players you're trying to improve lots of different you know characteristics of them um, as you go and, and that's a great tool you can use sport to, to improve them as kids so um, yeah I've enjoyed the, the more I've done with it the more I've enjoyed it and you know if I ever if I have time to get involved more I definitely will um, but yeah we shall see My son has experienced plenty of the Selby family coaching and for me the most important thing is the respect and the honesty that is laid down almost as the foundation stone of the coaching principles that these kids are exposed to. Was that something that you also had in effect drilled into your head as a youngster? Yeah I think so. I mean. Uh, especially from mum and dad it's um, it's always you know it's drilled home yeah drilled home I don't know I think it's just suggested and, and expected really that you you behave um, in an honourable way towards your opponent really as best you can um, don't pick up double bounces all that type of thing respect your coach um, you know that doesn't mean that you don't have moments as a player when you you, you disagree with with the, your opponent or the referee or something. But um, I think, as you say, having that as a cornerstone and trying always trying your best to uphold good values and um, you know that if you can do that as a coach and try and instill that in your players, um, you know it might not work every time, but you know, I think the player gradually realises over time that they uh, they know what's right and then what's wrong and what they should be doing. Um, and that's the most important thing because you can't be there for them all the time, every tournament they play. But when they're away and they know what's expected of the coach from back home, then they normally um, don't try and get away with too much when they're away. So what about the guy you're playing this evening, a certain Mr. Will Stroth? How does he compare to you? He's a lot taller than me, for one. But um, no, he's he's a legend of the game, really, James. He's uh, He's been world number one, um, you know, one time in his career as the best player in the world. And he's won, not too many months ago, the, uh, the Commonwealth gold medal in Australia for the singles. So... Um, yeah, he's well known amongst the uh, you know the world of squash. But I understand that in that particular competition, the Commonwealth, you also participated and might have done quite well. In fact, the BBC had you doing better than you actually did. Well, no, they had me. I think winning gold in table tennis, <laughs> which which I would be very happy with because I'm not as good at table tennis as I am at squash. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I won a silver. I say I won a silver. Myself and my partner Adrian, while I won a silver in the men's doubles, which um, yeah which beat uh, the bronze that I got actually with James in the doubles from uh, from Glasgow so to get a silver was something to be very proud of obviously disappointed not quite winning the final uh, we had a good chance to win it but um, you know a bit like England in the football last night I think it was uh, a little bit of experience um, from from Mr Palmer who's the Australian guy um, who played and uh, yeah it wasn't quite to be but silver was something to, to be proud of I think absolutely and I I actually have a photograph of my son holding your medal yes. so uh, that was very nice so Good. thank you for that pleasure
to their love They never found a single reason not to do it They've all got a special wonder that they're thinking of It's kind of funny when your heart beats out of splendor This is a song entitled Impossible by a band called The Demos, about which, ironically enough, I found it impossible to glean any information whatsoever from the internet. The song is about how it is impossible to toot one's own horn, which I thought was a rather odd claim to make, as many of us do it all the time. Then someone said to me, why do dogs lick their private parts? And I answered, because they can. And then the penny dropped. It being impossible to toot one's own horn is a euphemism, although the song delves into how advanced yoga can make some supposedly impossible things possible. But your eyes burn bright and it feels so right to be loved this time. And the stars burn bright and it feels so security and you're in the departure lounge sitting at the right gate with one hour to spare you think it'd be pretty much impossible to miss that plane wouldn't you well I did and it's the first time since 1972 when I flew for the first time to Spain to go on holiday and when I got back I was one of a very small minority of kids in my class who'd ever been on a big aeroplane. So, eventually, when I realized that the plane had gone without me, I complained to the guy at the gate and he said that there had been an announcement changing the gate from five to four. And I said, I didn't hear that announcement. And he said it was made repeatedly. He then said that somebody had come in person and walked around gate five screaming out my name and the flight and the fact that I had to, to board as soon as possible. I decided that all this was a lie. That first announcement, maybe, but they did not make any further efforts to get me on that plane. Of that I am sure. I came back to the airport later that day and caught a different flight. And it was very interesting what happened. First of all, they changed the gate again. And I noticed that they only made one muffled announcement and somebody stood there by the gate and told the people standing nearby that the gate had been changed from four to six. Luckily this time I heard it and I got on the plane and we were waiting to depart and next to me there was an empty seat and a guy comes on in a kind of a fluorescent green vest with a walkie-talkie and a clipboard and he gets the names of all the people sitting in my row, row 17. 
and as a result was able to work out the name of the passenger that wasn't in that seat. He then went back down the aisle and got off the plane. The door was shut immediately and we reversed out and taxied and took off. In other words, they made absolutely no effort whatsoever to try to find that passenger who was presumably sitting at the original gate back there in the departure lounge. So I think this is how it works. I think that they get fined if their plane takes off late. I think if a passenger has checked in some luggage, then they will definitely try to find that passenger. Otherwise, they have to send some guy into the hold and look for the piece of luggage and remove it from the plane. I think that they have to know the names of all the people who are on the plane and therefore those who are not. And that's why they don't give two hoots about a missing passenger if that passenger hasn't checked any luggage in. So next time I try to fly back from Bali to Jogja, I'm going to check in a box of bananas. And I'm sure they'll make an effort to find me in the departure lounge rather than send somebody in looking for those bananas. They're on fire tonight, and there's another opportunity to hear them with the Mission Impossible theme. Henry, take it away. Even little Dave's having a go on the uh, flute now. Well, Ian, you know, we've looked at how the impossible has been made possible in history, politics, even in human relationships. And uh, whilst we were listening to that last piece, we've had a text from Davy Stalls from Stanway, and he writes, Dear Box 39, it is really impossible for radio presenters to stop going on and on and on, reading out inane and egotistical texts from listeners. Is it so impossible to have radio shows where the so-called disc jockeys don't spend the entire time bleating on like overinflated chat monkeys? To my mind, says Davy, the best radio presenters are the ones who are seen and never heard. By the way, he says, love the show, particularly love the bits where none of you are talking. Oh. That's nice, isn't it? I love it. Thank you, yeah, Davy. Thanks, Davy. Now, is there anything that still remains impossible, Ian, in this world? Uh, what still is impossible? Um, okay, I'll give you this one. Folding a piece of paper more than eight times. Now, you see, that is a myth, isn't it? I don't think so. I've never achieved it. I've tried. Well, you've just not got the right I've tried paper. it with very thin foil as well. It doesn't work. Uh, Sorry. Well, I think maybe it's your age. Possibly. It could be something to do with it. Yeah. I tell you what, Matt, what may be still impossible, to be honest, and I'm going to upset a few of our loyal listeners, especially Bryn, Colchester United reaching the Premiership. No, I agree with you on that one. That is impossible. And, and the reason being that we just don't have the money to reach the Premiership. No, no. We need a billionaire, really. But never mind. Uh, he's doing his best. Anyway, what about sneezing with your eyes open? Is that not, is that not possible? They're supposed to pop out. Not the no, sneeze, your no, eyes. No, you're thinking about um, uh, uh, when you blow up a gobble's nose, it's eyes water. No, no, no. no, no it's definitely sneezing with your eyes open. Oh, Come on, fine. Right. Have you got another one? Well, I think it's impossible for a human to fly using just their arms, their own arms, as wings. Well, you can certainly manoeuvre in air, can't you? If you jump out of an aeroplane that's high enough off the ground, because that's what that... But it's still called free fall... But you can manoeuvre, you know, you can adopt yeah. that funny shape like they do in, in Mission Impossible, when he <laughs> yes, catches the wingtip. Oh, I love it when it all comes together. Did you yeah, think we yeah. thought we'd actually planned I what mean, on earth we were going to say? When that's you think about it, amazing. it's a very small plane in a very big sky, isn't it? Surprised they could even film it, yeah, let alone wonderful. it happen. Wonderful. Uh, that, that was wonderful. The power of cinema, Bill. Oh, I tell you what's impossible, that anyone would ever really know what's in the KFC secret recipe coating, because that's a secret, you know. It is a secret, and you would need Tom Cruise to go and find it out for you. Frankly, we're back to that film again, aren't we? 
In fact, if you were... That's the uh, next one in the series. Well, the thing is, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to tell you it was in the secret coating. Now, the first ingredient is... And uh, they just end up with a few bits of cardboard at the bottom. Ah, very interesting. I'm surprised by that. But thank you for telling me. Yeah. Hope you all heard that. Now, uh, it is impossible to stand in a checkout at a supermarket and not look at what the person in front's buying. That's got to be impossible. Well, it is always quite a surprise, isn't it? I mean, would you buy all those things? Well, I certainly wouldn't buy those and the and the uh, and the jelly to go with them. Not no, at all. No, no, make a make a very peculiar mess, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, certainly would. Uh, but I'd love seeing the uh, different drinks that people buy. I have to say that's quite interesting, isn't it? People watching and is seeing that what alcoholic little... drinks or well, yes, yeah, so I, I suppose it is really a little bit sneaky. What about walking on water, Bill? That's always struck me as being quite difficult, unless it's a very very no. shallow puddle. I saw that uh, that man on the television that does tricks. What's his name? In Dynamo. He did it. He did walked he really? on water. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it. So it must be true. It was on the telly. It wasn't a trick. Oh, do you think so? Well, that's the called magic tricks, aren't they? Oh. Well, you mean I just saw it, it was... wasn't for real, Bill. It was probably a piece of glass or perspex under the water. Oh no. And anyway, when you walk on, even when you walk on a puddle, there is some water under your shoe, a couple of atoms possibly. Oh. Or molecules even as water isn't an atom. No, I, no, I'm, I think I'm, I'm quite devastated by that. I thought Dynamo was just this really clever bug. Evidently not. Come on, give us another. Well, I think it's impossible to be in more than one place at the same time. Don't your employers make that happen for you? <laughs> or at least <laughs> wish like, you to achieve it. They would like to try it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, look, come on. Uh, prove the existence. Last one here. Can you prove the existence of an infinitely benevolent god? No. I can't prove it. You may believe it, and you're welcome to your beliefs, and I'm not going to argue, but no, I can't. Well, you know, Nelson Mandela seems, it always seems impossible until it's done. Yeah, he's right, and it's a bit like the BBC breaking down all homework into small-sized bites, isn't it? It seems impossible, but if you break it down to in a small bit, it's doable. Slowly. You're right. You know, Charles Swindoll, this US clergyman, said, we're all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. And can I just apologise to all Cone Radio listeners there, because I advertised another radio company. I do apologise. Apology accepted. You know, this show, in has taught me that impossible and possible are not separate uh, words. They're related to each other. They, they are. can change. They are. One's got I am in front of it. You can begin to achieve what you thought was impossible by making gradually increasing efforts towards the goal of its possibility. The beginning of change. The beginning of making the impossible. The new possible lies in belief. This is a belief in yourself. The power of yourself. And the unmitigated power of West Ham United. Take your cracked violin let the music begin and sing like your Francis a broken. If your voice is all shot, still the best one you've got. You're a work of art that's broken. See what the blind man paints. Abstract expressionist sing. After 12 years of near silence, the enigmatic and reclusive songwriter Paddy McLoon dusted off the prefab Sprout brand name that had had six top 20 hit albums of sophisticated, mellow and lyrically intriguing jazzy pop music in the 1980s and released Crimson Red in 2013. This is the list of impossible things. We are on the list of impossible things. He may well be right. Make of it what you will, though. Crazy the mystic song But what if they're right all along? And we really are. That's it, folks. It's time for us to go. We hope you have enjoyed listening to our impossible special here on Box 39 with me, Bill Lawrence. 
Andy and Talentire, Adrian Cohen, and our house band, Ausgang Exit, providing our live studio music. Well, so from where we are, high up on the top floor, Studio One, here at Cone Radio Towers, high above the full and fertile lands of North East Essex, where once again, Mr Lawrence is becoming delusional. It's time for us to close Box 39 once more. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. We're on the list of impossible things. High on the list of impossible things. Box 39 has been a guppy production for Cone Radio.